0: So for this episode of Heads Up, I'm glad to be sitting here with my guests on screen because it would be one of those classic images with me appearing absolutely tiny. Um, But we have also had the added challenge of two guests today, so I'll try to ensure our conversation um, flows as best it can. The first guest is is not a million miles from me, as he's the current director of the academy at Gloucester Rugby Club. Having played at Melrose and League Types and coached at London Welsh, Edinburgh, Worcester Warriors, as well as Scotland Under-20s, ospreys and the russian national team and that is the wonderful Karl hogg Uh, my second guest is the saracens legend and in the spirit of transparency our daughters are also good friends Uh, kevin played for saracens and upon retirement joined the coaching staff and is the backs coach um, and is the epitome i think of a one club man which is fantastic because there aren't many of those around Uh, i've also learned and i might need to press him on this that he's launched his own leisurewear brand and is even branched into craft beers, So uh, maybe we'll be able to talk a little bit about that later. But Carl and Kevin, welcome to Heads Up. I believe that sports like education is a, a genuinely reflective profession. Um, and I know that after games and seasons and experiences, you as individuals, as well as the team, will kind of dissect what's gone well and what's not gone so well, and maybe what will be repeated and what will never be done again. But speaking personally, and maybe Kevin, if you could start, what are the biggest lessons you've taken from your playing days? I
1: think probably the biggest lesson was probably my biggest regret as well, that um, I sort of, I was on the fringe of getting involved with England and I sort of went into the odd camp here and there. And then I got called in to a camp and then played a game and then went on tour with them. And it went it went relatively well. And then I got included in the EPS the next year. And I suppose when I walked into the EPS, I sort of walked into the room and there was Mike Cat, Will Greenwood, Johnny Wilkinson. And I was sort of looking around Mike Tindall and I was going, do, do I actually belong here? And it was the first time I properly had doubt about whether I could compete at that level. And therefore I then sort of went into my shell and didn't give the best version of myself. And I think that for me, looking back was a massive regret because I didn't give the best of myself, so I don't know whether I'd been able to compete at that level because I sort of took a backward step. And I think that's the biggest lesson I took from that, that I don't want any of my players to feel like they can't give the best version of themselves. And it's it's about not being fearful and not worrying about a situation, but just ripping in and going for it. Because then then you then you know, if you've given the best of yourself, you've given yourself every every possible opportunity, whereas I don't think I did in that moment. So that was a massive regret, but also the biggest lesson that's probably shaped... I want to be as a coach as
0: well. and Carl, what do you think about that one?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. It's
2: um, when Kevin talks about having doubt. uh, I came through a background at Melrose under Jim Telfer where um, everything was about the team and the psychology was not to let your teammates down. It wasn't necessarily... I never viewed the game as a platform to me, for me to express myself or show my, my ability or my quality. It was about not letting your teammates down and it is a different psychology. and I think now players, the very best players see the game as that opportunity, that stage to show, show the world what they can do. and yeah, it's just a, it's a different mentality and it's, it's a different time frame when I played, but we were very much about not letting your teammates down um, rather than viewing the game as, as an opportunity.
0: I think when I when I talk to people or when I'm asked about why why I became a teacher and why I'm now a leader I point to teachers that I had when I was at school who genuinely inspired me and in fact I found out recently that the main reason I'm a teacher that the one teacher who did that was a former pupil here um, at St Edward's which I didn't know until a couple of months ago but I think when I look at the kind of leader I am now I can see aspects of people that I've admired whether it's it's in sport, in education or, or any other area, but also that there are bits of me and bits of them in how I do. But speaking about yourselves, so I'll, I'll go to Carl first because I know, I know that Kevin's just come straight off the Sarason's training ground. What helped shape the type of coach and leader that you are
2: now? I think very much my background. So my father captained in the club at Melrose in the 60s. I came from a farming background, all mine was a farmer. My uncle was Jim Telfer, the Living with the Legends, um, and he coached me for 10 years. You know, and you see the intensity Jim's got, if you've ever watched Living with the Lions video, he generated that intensity every single week, every single session. Um, so that was always going to shape me as a as a player, as a as a coach. As a player, I was very comfortable, pretty vocal, didn't mind holding people to account. I understood pretty early in my coaching journey, or sorry, my playing journey, that if I put pressure on my fellow players, that pressure came back on myself. You know, my my, my best mate in the dressing room was the guy Doddy Weir. So Doddy would be horizontal, hang on to the radar before warm-ups, and he just looked so disinterested. But he had a flick, he had a switch he could flick and he could play. And I I tried that for a short period of time, and I was absolutely horrific. And I understood I had to go through a certain mental process to get to the right space to play the game. And that obviously, with Telfer's influence, that influenced me as a, as a coach. And without doubt, the way I coached certainly early on was very Telfer-esque. And I think we got a little bit of I got a little bit of traction when I first transitioned from Leeds into the academy. With some young players like Danny Kerr, Kieran O'Meyer. I used to abuse Danny every Tuesday, Thursday, tell him what a little, you know what, um, thought he was a rock star because he came from football. And it seemed to get some traction, it seemed to work. And then I remember moving at senior level um, with um, professional players up in Edinburgh, Simon Taylor's, Ali Hog, and using the same abrupt authoritarian dictatorial uh, language and stance. And, and hitting a brick wall, essentially, where players were, no, that's not going to work with me. And it was a real um, road to Damascus experience where I thought, you know, everything that I've experienced and understood, and, and Miller's won something like six championships in eight years. Jim created something like 11 or 12 test players with a 10-mile radius. That, that was the right way to do it. Clearly, in my mind, that was the right way to do it. But then as I evolved into coaching was... No, players have changed and you've got to find different ways of tapping into them. And gone of the days of, I say, dictatorial coaching. And, you know, we mentioned earlier off, off this uh, podcast, Kevin Byring was my coaching mentor and he was phenomenal. And his sort of strap line was know yourself, how I conduct myself, the way I think, how I portray myself on people. But more importantly, understand them. How do they view you? And how do they learn and understand? How can you make that connection for them? And that's the most important thing. It's how do you get the best at a player? Therefore, you've got to put yourself in the in the player's shoes. You know, and that was a, I see I, I transitioned pretty quickly from being that old school coach to building much more stronger, trustworthy uh or trusting relationships with players. Kevin? And,
1: yeah, I suppose um while I've I've been at one club. I had, I think in my playing time, I had nine, nine different head coaches. So it was almost like being at nine different clubs effectively. So and from a player's perspective, when I was going through when we were going through those different processes with the different coaches, it was almost like you'd I was going, Yeah, I'm not sure about that. Or I I really like that. I'd like if I was to do something like this, I'd that's how I'd do it. So there was bits and pieces along the way that I thought worked from a player's perspective, and then I suppose from then, the coaching perspective, I've only really so. If Brendan was there when he took over, and I sort of transitioned into the the playing side of things. So, but he was only at the short, he was only at the club for eighteen months, but had a massive impact on the club and the, the transition from where we were to where we are now. But I look at Mark McCall and I sit next to him every day, and I look at him and I think I've sat next to him for eight nine years, and I still go, God, I've got a lot to learn because he's just so so brilliant at his job. And what Kyle said there about having to build trust in relationships and purposeful relationships, the way he goes about doing that with the squad in terms of building the relationships, we put a massive premium on that because that then allows you to have honest conversations with the players. And, and that then allows the player to have an open channel for them to be honest to us. And then, then, then the lines of communication are open and then there's no frustration between the players. So it's... It's all about the relationships and the trust you build with the players. Now, as as Carl said, obviously there's going to be times when you have to be directive and prescriptive in what you want them to do. But it's a proper partnership between the two of them. Uh, I, I know Mark said he was very he, there was, he had success at Ulster early on, and he said that sort of turned quite quickly there, and he he could see how it unravelled really quickly. And it's just sort of, I suppose, his his role is keeping an eye out for anything that could probably trip us up and try and keep us on an even keel, really. I was
0: struck once, and Kevin, you know this, because where, where I was head previously, you know, we, we did a bit of work with Saracens, and um, I was struck by a story, I think it was Andy Gould who shared it, because him and, him and Neil Decock used to come into the school a bit and help us with our, with a kind of, an, an attempt at a Saracens way, as a St. Martha's way, that when players came in, it was also their wives or their partners that would be part of that process, and actually the club had done the homework, they knew that that was the player they wanted but it was how everything else had to fit in as well, that the rest of their family would need to be happy, they'd feel settled. And if that wasn't the case, then it wouldn't have been right for the club. And that struck me as an incredibly honest and, and phenomenal approach to take, because actually it might mean that you lose a great player potentially for the club, but it was the right thing in terms of the balance and. Yeah, I've seen for myself, you know, the Saracens family. I've had the privilege of being in the players' lounge at, at, the, at the ground as well. And, and seeing that is unbelievably fantastic. It's brilliant to see. And I suppose it's a culture, isn't it, that's been created at the club?
1: Yeah, I think that's... I suppose what you're trying to do is have a, a happy player who's able to, to, to rip in every day. With the intensity that Carl spoke about, it's it's it's, it's, a, it's a tough sport. So you need to replicate that during the week. So we ask for... I think Brendan ended up working out the amount of time that they were working at the club and actually on the pitch, it was something like 7% of their actual day. So we want 7% of maximum intensity. When you actually go onto the pitch, that's your all in for those, for those 7% or uh, that time. But in order for them to do that, they've got to try, we try and have as stable and as happy life for them as possible, as possible. just not, not just at the time of the club, but outside the club. So as you say, that includes family. So I was talking to one one figler who's the prop and he was saying he couldn't believe it when he signed because he said we, they sat down and he they brought his wife to the the conversation and they went okay yeah enough we know but we know a lot about you but okay trini what what about you what 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 do you like what can we help you with what what are your interests where do you want to live like what do you want to do and he said i sat there for for 15 minutes speaking about rugby and then she spoke about 30 minutes about what she was interested in and her and her career and what she wants to do so it's, it's massively important to, to us to get that balance, the work and the, and, the, and the life balance. We always try and have this, it's almost like a, a pendulum that swings between performance and people. And any time we go too far one way, it sort of sets it out of kilter in terms of what we do. If we go too far to the performance, we lose the balance with the people side of things. So it's, it's a constant work in progress. But yeah, you just try and sort of provide enough support and care for the player that they can then rip in for that, that period
0: of time when they're on the pitch. I've recently had the privilege of visiting King's home and uh, you'll both know how difficult that was for me to say, knowing who I support, but uh, I won't mention that. But to explore ways in which St. Edward's and, and Gloucester could work together. And know, yeah, we're lucky we've got a number of students here who'd like to pursue a career in professional sport. So I guess knowing what you know, what advice would you give to a young person considering a career in professional sport? And I suppose building on that, what sort of things can they be doing to increase their chances of success?
2: I think balance. Um, it's, it's interesting what Kevin's saying about you get the best out of people with a holistic approach. I, I think rugby is really unique in that we're in a contact collision sport. And for people to do that um, consistently, they have to feel valued and they have to feel cared about. And, you know, if you've got a group of blokes that are prepared to go out the well for each other, It's because they care and value each other. So I think with my um, advice to to any young player is enjoy it. You'll get massive satisfaction with pushing yourself as far as you possibly can, but there's also a balance in life. You've got to make sure that you get an all-rounded approach to your sport, whether that's rugby or any other sport. And I do think it's absolutely critical that you get some sort of, whether that's maintaining education or work experience away from your sport there's a lot of research at the moment to say especially in uh, rugby league in australia to um, say the people that have had the most successful and longest careers have got business or academic interests away from the sport uh, and i think that's really vital that they don't put all their eggs in one basket in
0: the sporting basket you're absolutely right i think it's it's, it's having that you know you, we've spoken and you you've talked about the this kind of conversion figures from those in the elite academy into into professional sport, and it's there's also other reasons why you know people for whatever reason might not you know make it. Like an accident could happen, or or something beyond their control means that they can't. And it's it's a really difficult thing to do because you don't want to be appearing to to be shattering their dreams, you know. And but it actually, is having that plan B or plan C. And in fact, the way that I've described it to some of the, the students here is, I'm not telling you to have a plan B, but say say you're a professional sportsman or woman. Your career might go till 30, 35. What are you gonna do when you retire? And you don't want to be thinking, well, I'll wait till I retire before I start thinking about what could be or what might be the right thing for me to do. So it's really tough. But of course, you're sat there talking with parents and children who have invested years and potentially been in academies for an extremely long time. But you know, there's only a certain number that will make it through. Uh, it may be that uh, the position that they hop that they play that there's a there's a real dearth of of talent within the squad to make it go through that way, and there's nothing much you can do about that, is there?
2: I'd add to that, Matthews. So I, I came from an amateur era where I got a degree in civil engineering, was halfway to becoming uh, chartered, played international rugby at 22, and I had balance in life, and then it went professional in 96, 97. So I went from I said halfway to becoming chartered to full-time and the school of thought at the time was, you've got to give up your engineering. You can't do anything other than rugby. Your sole focus needs to be on rugby. And the first two years of my professional rugby career were, were terrible because I had a sole focus on rugby. I didn't play well. I'd review my game. I was almost OCD and I became this downward spiral and I had no release away from rugby and... We've almost gone full circle now where, you know, that education, that external, um, whether it's business or, or any other stimulus, is really important for players. And I'm going to embarrass Kevin. The, the way Sarasers have built their model, and they talk about caring for people, caring for the players, not just in the term of the contract, but for their lifetime, and creating business opportunities or educational opportunities It's fantastic, you know, and that's the model forever. They've set the bar for every other club to to achieve that. And, you know, it's definitely the way forward where players do have that balance. And I think, I say, I've seen it go full circle from amateur to solely professional, and that's your sole focus. And then now starting to evolve out again. Yes, you can still play international rugby in a professional environment, but you can still have business or, or academic interests away from the sport in fact it's vital that you do have that
1: The biggest thing I reckon is you, you see all these uh clips on YouTube of people who are doing all these unbelievable bits of skill or these brilliant bits of play like you, you can have a highlight reel of, of Owen Farrell or Mara Otoji but what you don't see is the hours and hours and hours of struggle and toil that they've put in to get to that place and it's not a smooth journey it's very bumpy it's messy learning learning is very messy it's a not a, not a smooth path to, to get to where you need to get and it's about being resilient along the way as well and having a proper internal drive around it and I think you learn as you go along really like I suppose your perception as an 18 year old coming into the game would be you're, you're the best player at your school or college or team or whatever it is but whether they've actually thought about the game in terms of or is it a natural talent they've got? So when they then have to think about the game and apply themselves in a different way, that's almost a bit of a shock. It's like, hold on a minute, I'm not actually as good as I thought I was, and it's that can be a little bit of a knock on them. So it's it's not a smooth pathway, but it's a brilliant journey. It's a it's a brilliant, brilliant journey. Like I've, I'm effectively, I've been so lucky. Like Carl saying, when when the game went professional, it was just as I left school. So I was so lucky that I went straight into it from from school. And I've just I've been working 20 odd years at the club, but it doesn't feel like a job to me because it's just so so good. Like I lo- I love what I do and I love the people I work with, so it's not a not a chore in any way, but it's it's a way, it's a proper way of life, I think. Like Carl, Carl, will say, like it's when you do it, you're all in because it's not sociable in terms of you're on the computer majority of Sunday because you're reviewing a game and you you have to sacrifice that family time. But the the, the flip side of it is. Is you do a job you truly truly love doing so be resilient but go all into it because if you just dip in you won't know whether you could have done it or not so you've got to go all in
0: with it I'd say. I think that's right I think one of the challenges that I find or I think schools find is that children now think that things just come naturally they just it will just happen um, they won't need to put that time that effort into it because they see people in various reality shows or, or and then from there is there's a springboard to anything they could possibly want and actually to have a career that's that's meaningful, you know, like you two have, have both had, you, you have to put the work in, you have to put the time in, you know, I, I sat, I'm sat here in a, in a lovely office enjoying myself at St. Edwards, and that's fantastic. It's brilliant, but a lot of hard work. And actually, a lot of failure has gone into the fact that I'm here and got to this point and, and recovered from there and resilience and perseverance are absolutely Kevin as you touched on a, a, a skills that everyone should have and they're kind of they're kind of buzzwords which is never a good thing um because then it becomes a little bit trendy but actually they are absolutely spot on in terms of what we need whatever it is you're trying to do or move move towards Kevin knows that when I was headmaster of St Martha's we did work closely with Saracens and I felt it was a way that enhanced both Saracens and, and St Martha's. And you know what, Neil de was an absolute superstar and now He was coming towards the end of his his career and, and kind of looking at opportunities within Saracens to do things. And the Saracens Way programme was there. And we tried to come up with a St Martha's Way, which was fantastic. And a couple of weeks ago when I was talking to Carl, the number of players we've touched on this who won't make it through, you know, who think, as Kevin said, yeah, they are the best in their school or their club, but then maybe you're not necessarily going to make the cut when it comes to an elite academy or where they go. What what do clubs do to kind of help their players and staff cope with not only the demands of being a sports player, but maybe those who don't make it? What What do we do? What can you do? What do you do around that?
1: I remember we had um, got like a PDP guy who does the personal development programme and he, at the time he said the exit route is probably the most important part of that player's journey at the club so that they leave on good terms and they leave feeling like the club has has been good to them. So I know, for example, at the moment, we've got quite a few players out of contract at the end of this year. Um, and I know Nick Kennedy is... So, he's actually actively trying to find them. Like, so our own recruitment guy is actively finding them. This is not to help them get another club and what they're doing there. I think you touched on some of the business side of things. So, as Carl said, like, we, we try and get the boys to have an activity, whether it's study or work experience through a sponsor or a contact at the club with a view to them, them progressing and maybe even setting up their own business as Chris Wiles has done, as Brad Barrett's done, as a few of the boys have done in terms of that so that they can then transition from from out their playing days. Because it's it's t- like, like, again, I was lucky because I went straight from, from playing into coaching, but I know speaking to some of the lads that I played with, when that routine has gone and you're not being told where to go and what to do and what to wear and you've got to make a decision for yourself, it's like on a minute! what do I do now? And it's like, it's a, it's a big hole. And I know some some lads find it really hard to adjust and to, to not plan anymore. So I think the exit route is, is something we try and put a bit, bit of time into really to, to make sure that the player has got a smooth transition out of the club.
0: Oh, I suppose it's a bit more pertinent, particularly given your current role with the academy. So what do you think about that?
2: I think there's a couple of things in that, Matthew. We're trying to look at the narrative in, in the academy pathway and say, listen, we want to develop really good people and we want to develop players but ultimately most people will go back into local rugby club and, and we want to try and instill the old-fashioned values of of rugby the the camaraderie the network but when I grew up as young Philip Miller's rugby club it was more you know you stood had to be on a Saturday night and if you need your roof uh, fixing there's a plumber in the club that'll do it for mates' rates, and you know that that was part and parcel on the camaraderie and the network of being part of the club and he had a sense of belonging, and that these are the values that we want to instill in a young players. Yes, we still have to develop the next Louis Rees Summit. Of course we have to. You know, that's part of our role, but ultimately we want to develop good people that want to go back in and enjoy the game of rugby, enjoy it for the values and, and say all, all the associated benefits of that. Like Kevin was saying, we look at work placements, we're looking at work placements with sponsorship. The PRA do a great job, our RPA they are now do a great job in helping um, players educate and transition into the, the real world. But it's difficult. It's really difficult. And, you know, any player that goes from playing in front of 10 12,000 every week and people want to speak to you and, and people want to buy you a beer, within six months is... You're you're an individual, having been part of an environment a part of a group and a team, and to all of a sudden you're on your own. It's tough. It's really tough. And you know, we we try and give our guys as much support as we can. You know, we've got full time psychologists in with Robbie Anderson through Chimp Management that helps the guys with the transition. Tends to be the guys that tail end the career, but there is a there's a huge financial aspect to it, but there's a huge emotional and mental aspect
0: to it as well. So you've both kind of touched on it in terms of how rugby has changed significantly over the years and, and that move from the amateur to the professional and, and where we are now with the kind of the commercial side of, that runs alongside a, a successful rugby club. But um, I'm sure uh, maybe both of you would have liked to be playing now um, with, with the salaries and, and the benefits that, that some of those players now experience. But thinking about how rugby has changed, what do you think is, is better now about rugby than it was in the past, but also what areas maybe still need to be developed or a bit of work doing on them?
2: Well, I think, Matthew, going back to your question, I think I was one of the really fortunate generations. So we played as amateurs and we went in old-fashioned tours. You go away with Scotland to South Africa or Australia that's you know, all that is what goes on tour stays on tour. It was fantastic. It was great track. And, you know, we had the opportunity networking uh, top end of companies. And it, it was it, it was a very privileged life. And it did morph in, in, into uh, the professional world. And so you got you dip your toe in that. I think very bizarrely, all the values and attributes that we had as amateurs are now environments and organizations are trying to implement that in a professional setting so if you look at saracens now they want to create a culture where people care about each other you know they look after each other they look after families that's traditionally what a rugby club did you know i think we lost sight of it as a sport for probably about 10 years where it was just a a job of work it was just about you're an entity in a business and you must deliver 80 minutes and we don't care about whether you're injured or not um so i think people now have of as a sport we're going back to actually we need to value the people and we need to create this sense of belonging and and this sense of togetherness and you know exeter do particularly well down there as well so i think it, it's gone sort of 360. i'd say the benefits of professional sport is the medical treatment uh, that you get um certainly back in my day you know you, you got a jab and you got on with it. you know that that was the culture strap it up and get out there and get on with it and You look at my generation or even before my generation of of guys all with, you know, artificial hips and knees and all sorts, and we're all walking sticks and we're all mump and moan about our pains and aches. And where now the game is so physical and so fast is you can't afford to go out at 80, 90% fit. Um, You've got to be right on the money. And I see the medical and recovery provisions now in in Premiership rugby are are phenomenal.
1: Yeah, I agree, Carl. I think, as you say, like the, the conditioning of the players is through the roof and the strength and speed and fitness of them is, is through the roof. And that's as a result of the quality of the medical care and the quality of the s and I think the, obviously the, the the awareness around concussion has been a massive thing. Like I think back to, I was only chatting with Jerry last and my wife about it and sort of, would there have been things that happened that where I would have been concussed and then definitely would have played on, but that was... With the knowledge that was at that time and how we went about doing things there and so but that's that's brilliant for the safety of the players because you want it to be a safe game that people want to play like you don't want it to become a game where parents are worried about their kids playing the game you want you want it to be a game for across the board not just the top end like you want it to be a proper community game because there's so much in it so many lessons in it but I, I think the the, the point that Carl made is it's massively true. It's almost like I remember when Phil Morrow, who's the head of performance, he joined the club, and there was a little logo on the on the wall. And it was alcohol wins matches, <laughs> because we almost went back to when the first year of Brendan Venter. It was we 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 got flogged that pre season. We got absolutely flogged, and then we went to South Africa for ten days, and it was like a ten day stag do almost. It was like he was like there, and he was, he goes right lads you've done the hard work, he goes, now you're going to go and play golf, you're going to go and go to the vineyard, you're going to go and enjoy yourself, and you're going to get to know one another, and it was just like, it was an unbelievable time, I was spending quality time with people, having conversations you would never have got to, in a different setting, and it was just, as as Carl said, about the camaraderie, and the the belonging to to something, it sort of grew, it snowballed, and it grew, and you can't really lose sight of that, as, as you say, it's sort of like, it did go out a little bit when it went professional and it was like, nope, we've got to do this, got to do that. We've got to read this and do that. But there's, I think Phil talks about a sport like cycling where there's, it's output and wattage and very marked, like these tiny, tiny little things that give you the edge. Where The edge that you could possibly have in rugby when there's 15 people on the thing is the bond between the 15 people. And that's, that's really where you you, you might get your edge.
0: I remember seeing at at the Stadium of Saracens photos of the the tours, the trips that have been done. You can just tell everyone is enjoying themselves. Everyone is having fun. And, you know, if you do that at the beginning of a season or even midway through a season, it's got to give you an edge, hasn't it? It's got to.
1: Yeah, so I think it's, like I said before, it's that balance of the, the people and the performance. So it's, I think the overriding thing was, like when Brendan came in, was we're here to make memories. We're going to make memories, and that worked for the performance side of things because some people were massively driven by lifting a trophy and having that memory of like being on being there, like having a picture taken at the end of the season. Whereas some people have a memory of being at a, the Munich Beer Festival and 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 having a great time there, like and flying in and out on out in the day, like it. So there's different different avenues to get your memories made and. It ultimately leads to one thing really. So yeah.
0: Listen, uh Kevin and Carl, I know you're both very busy men. Um and I'm delighted that we managed to find a time when you could both talk to me for uh for this episode. I, I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts and views, but also the advice and the guidance that you've provided people who will listen to, to this podcast. I know that this this particular season has been a real strange one for, for all in sport, but um, I'd love to take this opportunity to wish you both personally and your clubs uh, the best of luck for the future, obviously, except when you're playing a certain other club in the southwest of England, um, whose name I'm not allowed to mention here in Gloucestershire. So please, both of you, just take care, stay safe, and, and thank you very much. Thank you.